Hey, Silver Stories family. I am so excited to bring this conversation to you today. I had the honor of interviewing Amanda E. White, uh, better known as At Therapy for Women in some spaces. Amanda is a licensed therapist, the founder of Therapy for Women Center in Philadelphia, and the author of Not Drinking Tonight, A Guide to Creating a Sober Life You Love. I really enjoyed my conversation with Amanda, both as fellow clinicians, but really just two sober people who had similar paths in a lot of ways. I do want to give you a little heads up. We do have a content warning for eating disorders and disordered eating. So if that is a tender subject for you, if that is something that you know will bring up too much for you to manage today, feel free to skip on to the next episode. But today we discussed the story of how Amanda came to sobriety through therapy for her eating disorder. And I really enjoyed her perspective on this from both the personal and the clinical side. We dug into how the nuance of language language and labels is really important as we are changing our relationship with alcohol. And we talked a little bit more about her book, Not Drinking Tonight. All right, y'all enjoy. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? All right, my friends, I have the incredible Amanda White here today of At Therapy for Women. Many of you know her from her Instagram channel and perhaps from her new book that has just come out, Not Drinking Tonight. Amanda, it is so great to have you on Sober Stories here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so give us a little bit of the cliff notes of Amanda. Tell us the story of you, who you are, who you do life with, any of the relevant highlights about your life at present? Yeah, so I live in Philadelphia with my husband and our two dogs right now. Um, so yeah, it's been a little rainy and kind of gross here, but it's <laughs> so winter. Same. Yeah, kind of the know? same in Austin. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I'm, uh, I have a therapy practice. It's called therapy for women's center. We're based in Philly, but we have practice or we have therapists across the country. I'm also an author of the book, not drinking tonight. And like you said, you might know me from my Instagram channel therapy for women. I'm also kind of on TikTok sporadically as well. Yeah, I feel you. I'm like also kind of on TikTok, but I'm of the elder millennial generation. And it's like, I don't really belong on TikTok, but I like to watch TikTok and and consume it. And every now and then I'm like, I'll make a TikTok. And then I get, you know, 20, 20 views. So I relate to that. Yeah. It's an interesting medium, but a a good one to at least I, I always have a lot of aspirational TikToks that I watch. I'm like, I would love to be that person who pours yes. that beautiful coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lots of aspirational ones for sure. And how long has therapy for women been working in other states? I know I saw recently that you were looking for therapists outside of, of Pennsylvania. Yeah. So it started with the pandemic. People just started reaching out to us more and asking, Hey, do you have a therapist in this state or that state? And we didn't at the time, but I was like, well, 
I don't know how long the pandemic is going to last. I don't know what's going on with, you know, like in-person therapy. What if, and someone, um, reached out and they were licensed in multiple States. And I was like, this is cool. We could then offer and help other people. And I kind of tested it out to see if this would work and it did. And it kind of just kept growing. And our goal is to have, you know, a licensed therapist in every state so that we can support anyone who reaches out to us and wants therapy with us. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? It's so interesting. The constraints of licensure and, and states and locations and all that. So it's really incredible that y'all are able to reach so many more people. So we kind of have the high notes. We have a glimpse of who you are today, but I would love to hear the story of you and alcohol. Is it a short story? Is it a novel? Is it a series? Give us kind of the synopsis of the story of Amanda and alcohol and kind of the main theme of that. Yeah. So I would say that I'm trying to think, I mean, it's funny because it feels long in my life, you know, (laughs) because it was a huge part of my life for so long, but I've also been sober for seven and a half years now. Um, so I also feel if you look at my life as you know, I'm 31, it's like interesting how the longer you get away from it, how time changes, Essentially, I feel like with alcohol, what's interesting is I also had a very severe eating disorder for a long time and they were very intertwined with each other. So if you look at different chapters of that story, some of them are more severe than others. So I, for example, in high school and college had a very severe eating disorder in college. I also got addicted to Adderall. I drank a lot more. So a lot of my behavior was more out of control, more looked kind of like a typical bottom or a typical someone with like a very serious addiction issue. Um, and then after college, I drank less, but was drinking more. Um, I was binge drinking less, but I was also drinking kind of more like at night. And I was very in this mindset that I deserved to drink because I was recovering from my eating disorder. So I feel like I have two different stories where I have that like really severe story, but I also have a part of my story where I felt like I'm not an alcoholic. I don't have a problem with alcohol. Um, and I felt more just like a problem drinker. Yeah. And, and I feel like many of us have had that experience of, well, but I'm not an alcoholic. So, yes. So when did you decide to change your relationship with alcohol? So I did so begrudgingly. Um, I was in therapy at the time after college and I was working on getting into recovery from my eating disorder. And I kept using alcohol essentially as a crutch. I kept using it at the end of the day to deal with stress, to deal with, you know, any emotions that came up, whatever. And I also felt like because my college experience was so fragmented and messy and kind of a train wreck for lack of a better word, because of my addiction at the time, I felt like I was reclaiming my college years. Mm. I was like 22. Yeah. So I was very into going out to bars and I was like, you know, now I have this confidence and I deserve to have a good time, but my drinking became a lot like Russian roulette where a lot of times I drank, it was fine and nothing bad happened. But when I did drink too much, 
the, I wasn't willing to deal with just how severe the consequences were. Like Mm -hmm. I was a blackout drinker when Mm -hmm. I binge drank and I would do things that I, that were against what I actually wanted to do. I would, you know, like abandon people at bars. I would disappear. I would. And essentially the last night that I drank, I was a yoga teacher at the time and I showed up to work and I taught a yoga class completely drunk and I was mortified. That just sounds hard. <laughs> it hurts my insides a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It was like a 6 a.m. class. I don't remember teaching it. And yeah, that was, I had questioned my relationship, I think a couple months before that. I had tried to moderate. I did the whole, like, I'm only going to drink wine. I'm only going to drink beer. I'm mm-hmm. not going to take shots anymore. I'm not going to pregame all of those things that we do. And Sometimes it worked, but mostly it didn't. And it just kind of kept going back to the same routine. And my therapist had kind of said, well, why don't you tra- take a 30-day break? And I agreed. And I like <laughs> only took a two-week break and like kind of was like, well, these were some weekends. So like the beginning and the end doesn't count. So it's about 30 days. Um, if y'all can't see Amanda right now, she just rolled her eyes, which is <laughs> so great. Cause that, yeah, that, that, that sentiment is, um, very understood. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So yeah, I kind of said that I did it even though I didn't. And then, yeah, the wake up call for me was when I taught yoga drunk, I, it wasn't even the worst drunk I'd ever had. Like I had mm-hmm. gotten into car crashes and done other things in college, but I finally listened to that inner knowing that inner wisdom that was like, if you keep doing this, how are you going to be a therapist? Cause I was also in school to become a therapist at mm. the time. And the even crazier thing is I had my internship at a drug and alcohol rehab mm. Mm. <laughs> and I would show up to work hungover. Yep. Yep. But I thought that I was different. So. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> I I've been digging into your book, not drinking tonight and I, my alcohol use really escalated when I was in grad school for therapy. Mm. <laughs> and oh my I God, was, I love that. I've never yeah. met anyone who had that experience. I was training to be a social worker in grad school and worked at a, um, a, a, a step place where, where they yeah. would come out after treatment and had the exact same situation and continued to practice in this, this experience. And I worked in emergency med and all of that is either mental health crisis or substance use. And I had so much cognitive dissonance between myself and the way alcohol was showing up in my life and, and them air quotes. Yeah. It's it, you can really separate it. And it, that it's wild to look back on, but in the moment, there's just such a, a distinct delineation in your brain of, of me versus them. So I hear you say that you started listening to like this heart tug and this idea that says, okay, this isn't the worst bottom. This isn't the worst one. And I think that that really speaks to this idea of one of the criteria of addiction is continuing use despite negative consequences. We still do this, even though it is showing up in our life in loud and quiet negative ways. But what happened when you listened to that heart tug and said, okay, maybe this isn't working. I was terrified. I didn't understand how I would be able to do it. Um, I was lucky that I had friends who, so I was in individual therapy and I was in a group therapy at the time. And in the group, other people were sober. We're going to 12 step meetings. So I was lucky to have a friend who I called up right away and was like, Hey, I want to go to an AA meeting with you. Mm. And she was wonderful. 
Um, and that I didn't know if I was an alcoholic. I didn't know if I deserved to be there, like a huge mm. part of me. And I think this is so common, right? As we yeah. say, like someone has it worse. I'm taking someone's seat. Mind mm. you, like there's plenty of seats. There are a million seats know? in the room. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many seats in the room. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just kind of didn't know where it was going to lead me, but I didn't know what else to do. Mm. So I just started going and I also was super lonely at the time, super like disconnected. So I was like, at least I have somewhere to go. Like yeah. at least I have something to do and show up. And selfishly, I was like, maybe I can make friends. <laughs> I was like, I'll use this group to make friends at yeah, least. I don't think that's selfish. I think that that makes a lot of sense. So I'm trying to do the math on it. So seven yeah. and a half years, that was like 2015-ish. 20, it was Labor Day 2014. 2014. I'm like, what is what is time? It's, it's all blurry at this point. It's so blurry. So, and that was really before... I feel like the conversation had shifted as far as what your options were when you exactly. realized that alcohol is not serving you. So you showed up in the rooms, you started doing AA. How did it go? What did that look like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't have anything negative to say about AA. I don't think that it's for everyone, but it, it, like you said, like, I didn't know if I was an alcoholic, I was afraid, but I also was like, this is where to go. This yeah. is, it was comforting that there was a plan. You know, mm-hmm. it's comforting when you go to a 12 step program and they're like, Hey, you're going to get a sponsor. You're yeah. going to do the steps. You're going to go to a meeting every day for 90 days, at least. And this is what it looks like. Yeah. So I was really comforted by that. And I did that and I got a sponsor and I like doing step work. Cause it kind of mm-hmm. just felt like therapy sort of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the steps are brilliant. It's, it's personal development. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I kept going. It was really great. I was lucky that where I live in Philly, there was a a large group of young people that also Mm. were involved. So I like made friends and had community. And one of the biggest things I started to realize was how much I liked myself more when I wasn't Mm. drinking. Um, when I stopped drinking, I was like, I think a lot of people, I was terrified that I wouldn't be fun. I wouldn't have friends. I mean, my mom, literally when I stopped drinking, when I told her I was an alcoholic, she was very defensive and was very like, no, you're not. How yeah. are you going to ever have friends? How are yeah. you going to ever get married if you don't drink? What does that mean about me as a mother? Right. Like, exactly. Not to exactly. put words in mom's mouth, but you know. But absolutely. Um, and the exact opposite happened. I didn't have very many friends before. I kind of graduated college losing all my friends because mm-hmm. of how crazy things were. And I was actually like, I like myself. I can actually be, I'm, I'm funny without alcohol. Sometimes I can actually be outgoing without Mm -hmm. alcohol. I am like a good friend and show up. I mean, I had a huge issue with being extremely flaky, Mm. uh, during my addiction. And I didn't like that about myself. And I was like, oh, if I don't drink, I can change this. Like I can Mm -hmm. actually just start showing up and doing things. Um, so yeah, it was really great. It, there weren't a lot of options. And maybe if it were, you know, seven years, if it were now, when I was questioning my relationship, maybe I would have done something else, but I worked the steps. I was very involved for a while. I got a job after graduating at a drug and alcohol rehab, which I absolutely loved and worked there for a number of years. And, um, At some point when I opened my private practice in Philadelphia, I started running into a lot of clients at meetings. Mm. Interesting. (laughs) And and that was hard because it wasn't 
a private space right. anymore. And I didn't want them to not go to meetings when they yeah. needed it. And I also felt like just as a therapist, sometimes I was giving a lot more than I was mm-hmm. getting. And my sponsor moved to New York. Um, and I naturally just kind of started stepping back from meetings, thinking about other things that filled me up. You know, I still go to therapy and I really get a lot of benefit out of going to like exercise classes or just, you know, yoga, things like that. Um, so I don't go to AA anymore, but it's not something that if I moved or if something came up, I wouldn't dip back into. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense though, about like the safe spaces, both for yourself and for your clients to be able to create these containers and feel safety and, and still maintain that patient client experiences. Yeah. A balancing act. So that yeah. makes a lot of sense. So when you talk again, I'm doing the math here. I'm, I'm like, okay, 31, seven yeah. and a half years. Alcohol so free. I was 24. Yeah. So, you know, we, I I've seen it discussed in different terms, but I like yeah. the idea of an early exiter, uh, yes. somebody who exits the highway early and yeah. it takes, takes the first exit before they go down the hundred mile path. And I was 28 when Mm -hmm. I quit drinking. And and I think every, a lot of people will say, man, I wish I quit sooner. (laughs) And there's, there's never, never a time that's too early. So I would love to hear a really good story that you can share with us about your path. Do you have any highlights or transformative experiences or I'm, I'm kind of curious about what it was like to be one of the more visible people to bring therapy and then by proxy recovery kind of into the mainstream and this social mm. culture we have on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what's interesting is that I do bring a different perspective because I'm a therapist. So mm. there are amazing people out there, amazing sober coaches. And, you know, I think of Holly Whitaker and Laura McEwen, and they're kind of like the and Annie Grace, they're like the trailblazers, I yeah. feel like of this movement. And it's funny. Cause I remember working in an addiction rehab and being very scared. I think, which a lot of people are of the sober movement going more mm-hmm. mainstream. And yeah. I think sometimes if we don't understand it, we can feel like this isn't good. People or- are going to Threatened yeah, like, by it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I was worried. I was like, well, you know, what are my clients going to do if anyone can question their relationship mm. with alcohol? And it wasn't until I got out of, um, I opened my own practice and I really saw how many people were struggling in some capacity with alcohol, but didn't meet the criteria mm-hmm. for having, you know, I, I was an early exiter, but I also had such low lows with my Adderall and with, um, my eating disorder that I was able to put that in kind of with my alcohol. And I was able to see, oh my God, if I keep drinking, I'm going to end up replaying the same thing I did in college just with alcohol again. Mm -hmm. And that was how I think I was able to be like, I can see where this path is going. Cause I've kind of been on it before with a different substance or a behavior. Um, so I started seeing it when I was opening my practice that there were a lot of people who were kind of doing some disordered drinking, binge drinking. It was negatively impacting their mental health. It was impacting their relationships, but they didn't meet this criteria. And Mm. I didn't believe they even necessarily like needed to call themselves an alcoholic or needed to go to AA or anything like that. 
Um, so I started thinking about, well, who are we leaving out of this conversation Mm. when we only say that this is what an alcoholic looks like, or this is someone who must question their relationship with alcohol. And I also started seeing that people get very into, right? Like I'm an alcoholic or I'm not. And I started seeing women like moms who didn't have a problem with alcohol in college or in their twenties. And then all of a sudden they became a parent and they were drinking more and they were like, well, I'm not an alcoholic, obviously, because I would have been by now, right? right? (laughs) Like the idea that you're born an alcoholic. And that's where I started thinking about this spectrum. And in my book, I talk about a term called disordered drinking. I almost threw my book across the room when I was reading that. I was like, finally, this is, this is the language that we need. Because right. Like we, we are, there's a term called disordered eating and we know based on studies, if you engage in disordered eating, you are more likely to develop an eating disorder. And we don't talk about even, I mean, I am appreciative that the DSM has changed and there's like the spectrum of alcohol use disorder, but you still have to meet certain criteria to be Mm -hmm. able to be part of it. And Mm -hmm. you can like wiggle and get out of it. And instead, I think we need to look at it as we are all in our life, probably going to dabble in some type of disordered drinking, especially Mm -hmm. if you go to college, you're probably doing binge drinking, which is disordered drinking. Totally. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily need to totally stop, but it does mean that you should like it would be helpful probably for you to question your relationship with alcohol. And maybe you're using alcohol as a crutch to, you know, make up for the gaps in your life that you didn't learn how to do, like processing your emotions, for example. Well, and I think, you know, I think what you speak to this idea that labels can be a barrier to entry for people, a barrier to what might otherwise be positive change in their life because either they don't identify or they're fearful of, or it just doesn't align with them to take on a certain label. And so many, and I know this was the case for myself. I never identified with the term alcoholic. And because Mm. of that, I continued my drinking for so much longer than I probably should have. And even when I love having this conversation with somebody in the mental health field and and, in clinical practice, because I think back to when I was getting my master's and when we had our, our dual diagnosis or our substance abuse, you know, class about all of this, we were only taught the 12 steps. And we were taught that when somebody met this clinical criteria, this is where they go, this is who they work with, and this is what it looks like. And because of even that limited view, and I, I, to be fair, I don't know what they're teaching in social work school these days, but, but back then, because of that limited view, when I experienced my own disordered drinking, as you say, I thought, well, that that's not going to work for me. And if that's my only option, I guess my other option is to continue drinking as I am because I don't right. fit, I don't fit in this box, but this box doesn't feel great over here. <laughs> and I love the term disordered drinking because I think it is really, um, it's really digestible for people because mm-hmm. we already have this parallel with disordered eating. We yeah. already have this understanding in culture as a, a broader spectrum of what disordered 
eating disorder, body image, whatever. anything. Yeah. Yeah. Anything to do in that realm of challenges. We already have the language and the understanding of what that looks like. So when we compare it to alcohol use, we already have these little, little neural pathways that are like, Oh, okay, this makes sense. This is clicking. And we can start to put the pieces together and you're, you're an LPC, right? Yeah. One of my life goals is to change the way that we have this idea of the spectrum from a clinical understanding, because Mm -hmm. I did a, I did a CEU the other day and it was all about the alcohol use disorder. And I was like, yeah, we're going to like have updated language and it's going to be so good. And then I read it and it still used very dated language and it still used very dated concepts. And like you said, who are we leaving behind? Who are all these people that are not fitting into this clinical description, but other ways might really benefit from changing their relationship with alcohol. So maybe we can like team up. I'll do like yeah. the LMSWO and you can like do the LBC and we can like go to conferences and blow everybody's mind. But one of the things that I've really enjoyed about your book is the way you write it from the perspective of these kind of amalgamated clients. Mm-hmm. So you have these three women in your book and they are kind of puzzle pieces of, of many different people that you've worked with over the time and many different people you've encountered. Yeah. So I would love to know a little bit more about how your personal experiences have impacted the work you do. And I'm, I'm especially interested in Andrea in the book, yeah. and this idea of a med student who has this cognitive dissonance of, well, I know clinically what this is, but that's not really me. That's not really me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Andrea is a really, a really good character amalgamation of quite a few people. And I have worked with a lot of women like her. And I think it's a really common one where someone comes in and they don't really think that they have a problem. Maybe on paper, they Mm. really look like they have it together. They have a high powered job things are going really well for them. They're perfectionistic. A lot of Mm. times they, you know, think they've aced self-care because it's like a checklist to them of like working out every day and drinking water and making your bed, you know, but they don't realize the cognitive dissonance of how drinking is negatively impacting their mental health or how, um, their life might be better if they didn't drink or they drank less. So, yeah. So I think that that is a really common one that happens often. And it's, it's probably the most common woman that I see in my private practice. Mm. I'm wondering if you have any theories about why that is. Cause I, I find I work with a lot of really high achieving women and Mm -hmm. I'm an Enneagram three myself and work with a bunch of Enneagram threes and ones and people who from the outside really look like they have it together and they have the morning routine and they have the check boxes and either secretly or not so secretly, they are drinking a bottle of wine every night and using that to calm their nervous system. Do you have ideas of why you think that is? I do. I think it is literally because if you put that much pressure on yourself, if you expect yourself to be that perfect, you need an outlet in mm. some capacity. Like I talk in my book too about overfunctioning and underfunctioning and I think a lot of people who overfunction put so much pressure on themselves. It's impossible to maintain that standard 24/7. Mm. So when you're in that intense of an environment of your head essentially, you need some type of escape. It's just not possible to be perfect yeah. all of the time. So then people will use alcohol or something like that as their form of escape to deal with how intense Mm. and rigid their standards are. Mm. I'm also wondering as I'm I'm processing this as we're talking, and I'm wondering too, if there's part of it that we're taught to do 
so many overtly achievable, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but overtly accomplished things and very objective things that we can grade, but we're not really taught to care for nervous system or we're not really taught to have interpersonal relationships that fulfill us, but we're achieving these other boxes and getting these other gold stars and it's slowly killing all of us. So I think that's really interesting. And, and one of the other things that you touch on here and there is again, your eating disorder. And I know that we have some understanding of the interconnectedness between eating disorders and challenges with substances. Do you see a lot of that in your practice and what does that kind of look like in, in your own life? Yeah, I see a lot of it in practice. I am shocked by how much we don't talk about it, to be Mm. honest, because Essentially, I mean, obviously I have my personal experience, but almost every woman that I know who has gotten sober has explored this in some capacity, whether they get sober and then they gain weight and they don't like how their body looks, whether they get sober and they realize that they're, you know, eating more than they're used to and they feel like they're a, you know, a food addict or whatever, mm. whether someone goes the opposite way and they start saying, well, now I'm getting my life together and alcohol is a poisonous substance. So I'm going to cut out everything and start running and going to the gym and being yeah. perfect. Mm. Um, it just affects everyone. And I was shocked when I worked in treatment, how common it was with women who never had an eating disorder mm. would end up, I worked with women essentially after they were in at the 30 day rehab, I worked in like the long-term women's unit. So they were with me for a minimum of 90 days. Okay. And almost every single one of them had something come up with food or body image Hmm. and people would end up kind of realizing that maybe they started using drugs or drinking to lose weight, Hmm. (laughs) or they would realize that it was something they were willing to relapse because they hated their body so much and they weren't comfortable in their body. And there was this really sad phrase that kept coming up when I worked in treatment that was, I would rather be uh, skinny and high than fat and sober. Ugh. And it just broke Ugh. my heart. Yeah. When I, I, when you said that there are people that are willing to relapse, I have seen the other side of that too, who yeah. are women who lean more into their eating disorder. And they're like, I, I got to keep this thing. Cause this is part of what helps me cope, but it's keeping mm. me sober in this interconnectedness. I feel like I've been interested in the research in this and I know we don't have a lot and we're still trying to figure out we don't, yeah. what it is, if it's the chicken or the egg and, and why these are so connected. But one of the things that you wrote in your books that really connected with me was this idea of skipping meals to save calories for the the wine you were drinking. And that is something I did in my experience. And I'm, I'm pretty open in the, the ether I I have currently, I currently experience and and struggle with disordered eating and body image and body dysmorphia. And, you know, when I think about it, I'm like, I don't know if this came before I drank. It's, it's hard to remember the before times. And I think it probably has always been there, but it wasn't as present when I was using alcohol. And for me, I I noticed that food is a coping mechanism for me. And and when Mm -hmm. I am stressed and when I am activated and when I am feeling that drain of my body battery, that's when I crave sugar. And that's when Mm -hmm. I want to numb out with something. And, and I, 
I'm tuned into that, trying to figure out the the right balance for that. But I think that it's so important that you talk about this so openly in your book, because there is so much interconnectedness and there is so much stigma around both and each individually. And it surprises a lot of people when they change their relationship with alcohol, that either the food stuff comes up or it resurfaces, or they just weren't even paying attention to it before. And I think that it's really important to, as your book is, have like this guidebook of, yeah, here's what might happen. And here's how we can work through these things. And here's how you, you know, it's kind of this like step-by-step, all right, here's what we're going to do. And I love what you said about the the 12 steps you went to AA and you're like, all right, I've got me checklist. And I feel like your book is such a great checklist for folks who are changing their relationship with alcohol in more of an unconventional way. So tell me a little bit about the process of, of writing your book and how not drinking tonight came to be. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, essentially I love all the books that are out there. I love the quit lit. I, um, also really appreciate that there are a lot of clinical books out there, but Mm. they're isn't a book before mine that really was written by a therapist who was also sober. Mm -hmm. So I can balance both being the client and being the therapist. And also I really wanted to bring research and scientific therapeutic tools into Mm. the book as well. Cause there are my language. There's so many books, right. On like what to say when you stop drinking and how to, you know, very how to kind of books, Mm -hmm. but not a lot dig into the why. Mm. dig into trauma, dig into shame, dig into all of these deeper things to me. And, um, I'm really, I mean, a whole third of my book is about reparenting because Mm. I really think that is a huge part of this whole journey. Because if you don't learn these tools of how to deal with your emotions, how to set boundaries, how to communicate, you aren't going to be able to change your relationship with alcohol long-term effectively. Yep. In sustainable ways for folks who don't know what the term reparenting means. Can you tell them? Yeah. Essentially reparenting is kind of thinking about the gaps in your childhood of where you grew up, of what you didn't get. And it's kind of like learning how to be an adult. Um, Mm. and it can be (laughs) right. It's, it shows up in different ways. And sometimes reparenting is dealing with being overparented. I think that's a really important thing for folks to know because you can have parents that did so much and were super, you know, involved, but maybe because of that, you didn't learn how to do some things by yourself, so to speak. Um, so yeah, it's just looking at the gaps. It's also looking at how to be a loving parent to yourself. So it's that line of, I talk about self-care in my book and I think people can really misunderstand what self-care is because they can think that it's either like treat yourself or, the check boxes that we were talking about. Yes. Yeah, spend a bunch of money or take a bubble bath. And that's exactly. All yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Where really the balance of self-care is being a loving parent to yourself. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's pushing yourself and, you know, getting up in the morning and making your bed or whatever, or going to the gym. And sometimes it's like, no, you need to skip that and, and go to sleep because mm-hmm. you really need to sleep and go to bed early tonight. And how do we balance that? I love, I believe it's Laura McCown who says, 
she calls it extreme mothering when you're in these early days of being alcohol free and this idea of, like you said, sometimes extreme mothering means having those boundaries and having those, those expectations, but sometimes it is very gentle and it is very sweet and tender and loving. Yep, absolutely. So you do a lot. You run a therapy (laughs) practice. You run a very successful social media account. You just wrote a book. How do you? Yeah, I didn't answer your question about how how did I write the book? (laughs) Okay, well, let's start there. How did you write the book? (laughs) Um, Well, I carved out time (laughs) to have to write the book for sure. Um, But yeah, it was was an interesting process of just, I really, um, I'm sure you've read the book maybe you should talk to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love Lori Gottlieb's book. So I loved being able to do the dialogue. Like as a therapist, one of my pet peeves is when you read a book and there's just case conceptualizations, mm. which is just like a long paragraph explaining who the client is and it's yeah. not super engaging. And I really wanted um, mine to be more dialogue and be more interactive because I think the therapeutic process is so powerful in that, right? Like we don't often tell people what to do, but we help them with the right questions, Mm. make those connections for themselves. And that was really what I wanted to do in my book. I don't tell people what to do. I'm very into choice, but I hope with the right questions, with the right dialogue, with the right research and information I provide, that um, readers can make those connections for themselves. Well, and I like how you kind of give an insight to your therapist brain of she yeah. said this and this is kind of what I thought. And then I asked this question and she was like, oh, I see, I got it. Yeah. So as you're writing this, as you were juggling all the plates that you juggle, what practices were helpful for you to maintain your own self and to take care of your own self and your own sobriety? I love this question. Um, I think one of the metaphors that I try to live by is, and I don't know who said it, but it's like the metaphor of when you're juggling balls and trying to find balance, knowing which ones are glass and which ones are plastic, mm-hmm. um, because the plastic balls will bounce and be fine. Right. And the glass balls will shatter. So I think about that a lot in like, I'm never going to have every ball perfectly up in the air. I have to focus on certain things and not other things, depending on Mm. what's going on in my life. And, um, so that was, that was really important for me. I also am just a huge believer in for me, like, especially with the pandemic and everything like movement exercise was so important. I need to at least go on a walk and get out of my house once a day for sure. Yeah, I hear you. I'm a big believer in in somatic experiencing and and moving energy through our physical bodies is a way to process because yes, as you can see, as we we are homebound these days right. and we are, are very uh full of a lot of stress and a lot of <laughs> tension at any given moment. All right, last question for you. Yeah. This is kind of a a, a mixed questions since you already have a book out, but every, every episode we ask our guest if a story were to be published about you and mm. your experience with alcohol, what would it be titled and what kind of story is it? So I think it would be a book. It would be a memoir. Um, and I think it would be called like, and this is a bad book title, but it would be <laughs> called like, like finding the gray or something yeah. like that. Because, That's a great book title. You're like, don't, <laughs> don't tell my editor. Yeah. 
Cause it's really, I think my life, not only like my mission with what I specialize in, because I specialize in kind of the overlaps, but it's because I've experienced all the overlaps of how do we find the nuance? How do we find the gray? How do we, um, find the intersection and recover from all these different things at this, you know, that kind of overlap. Mm. I, I think that that speaks to a lot of people's experiences and I think it's a great book title. So I <laughs> look forward to reading. I'll pitch it. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to reading this book about this gray area in a couple of years. I'll give you a little bit of a break while you <laughs> launch this current book. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right, Amanda. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story and allowing others to benefit from the power of your story and your experiences and the bravery that you bring into your work and what you share in more of the public realm right now. I know folks are going to want to connect with you. So if they want to find you, if they want to find your book, how do they connect with you? So you can follow me on Instagram at therapy for women is my handle. My book, not drinking tonight is available everywhere. Books are sold bookstores, Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, all of that. If you're interested in therapy, um, my website for that is therapyforwomencenter.com. Mm, and I have to say that the book has like a really nice matte texture on the cover, which I really appreciate. So if you're, if you're a sensory tactile person like me, it's a great book. And yeah, I think there's so much that you can get both from a, the personal perspective, but also I think it's really interesting to read. If you are a clinician, if you are working with people who experience challenges, because it just broadens our understanding of what it is exactly that we are working on and, and what causes these struggles that we have. But Amanda, it has been such a pleasure. You are such a wonderful guest and I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. All right. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Amanda E. White. Amanda shared so many good bits of wisdom today, and I hope you take something with you. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories and change more lives, just one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your biggest takeaways. And hey, you know, never know when we'll send a little thank you until next time my friends